Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, you've heard me say this before, and I'm starting this program again with the fact that we have um, a huge backlog of interviews that we're going to be working on, starting with um, a fall, early fall, actually, interview with um, Dear Kath Kinsman, um, who wrote a book or was involved with writing a book about breakfast for her uh, at the time, job extra crispy, which is all about breakfast, and, and uh, she has since she, changed jobs. Yeah, yeah, she must have she must have been up early in the morning. <laughs> hey, hey, cat! The early bird catches the yeah, food, and wine, job. <laughs> food and wine worm. <laughs> yeah, so she's now with food and wine, and uh, continues to do. Uh, I, I would say really advanced issues. Um, advanced causes, advanced a whole new perspective right. on this food industry. Yeah, she has another organization that she talks about in the interview. That yes, some, chefs with issues. Something to do with chefs. Yes, chefs with issues. So, don't, don't don't hang up before you get to that important part. But don't hang up because right after that, a couple of very interesting tracks about new food-related products that you won't want to miss. So anyway, first of all, here's Cat. Well, I have to start out and preface this whole interview of a book called um, Breakfast, the most important book about the best, scratch it out, most important, best meal of the day, because um, I am a breakfast lover, and I'm not a traditional breakfast person, so I don't eat cereal. <laughs> I don't eat anything like that. So I'm fascinated by this book that gives all kinds of opportunities, um, other options for what you're going to eat first thing in the morning or not, whatever. Um, the, the book is um, put out by the editors of Extra Crispy, which is, is a site devoted entirely to breakfast. We're going to ask Kat Kinsman, who is one of the editors and actually wrote um, one of the pieces in here, Could you explain the concept behind Extra Crispy? Oh, yes. Well, breakfast is one of those meals that people are not neutral on. You love breakfast or you hate it, or even if you think you hate it, there's, there's some particular kind of breakfast that you, that you love, that you have your, your, your ritual about. Uh, so when this site came into being in, uh, June of 2016, we really wanted to, um, fill in a space that nobody had really tackled on the internet before. Uh, you know, people would have discussions about breakfast. There would be maybe a breakfast focus week on a website, but we realized that if you write about breakfast, you can essentially use it as a Trojan horse, and you can talk about culture, you can talk about politics and identity and race and all different kinds of things all through asking people, how do you have breakfast? It tells so much about a person. So we've been around since uh, June of 2016, and we had the opportunity to do, the, to do this book and get it into more people's hands, and I'm so excited about it. Oh, well, it's, it's a, a lovely book. It's uh, beautifully illustrated. The photography is just great. And I love the illustrations, too. Um, when you ventured into this breakfast niche, um, you were pretty sure that it was not just a passing trend, that it was a, an important uh, aspect of the whole food scene? 
Well, I think there's been increasing, well, there, in general, <laughs> uh, people have been just paying more attention to food culture as a whole over the past, you know, decade or, or, or so. It's, it's become a different thing than it was before. People obviously have always eaten and cared very much about their own personal foods and about restaurant culture, but it's become more, especially in the past decade, a way to talk about a whole lot of, of different things. Um, the woman who came up with the idea of this site, uh, her name is Meredith Turrets, and she saw this and seized upon it. Um, she had been one of the people who uh, developed the site Bustle, and she really did her research and realized that more and more people were talking about breakfast. It was becoming more and more of a prevalent um, thing in restaurants. Restaurants were staying open all day long, somewhere that maybe before just served lunch and dinner was realizing that it was in their best interest to use up this valuable real estate and serve breakfast there as well. Um, these are challenging times, and it tends to be an inexpensive, comfortable meal that you can have, fill yourself up, fortify yourself for um, the day ahead. And since we launched this, we haven't seen any attrition in this. Mm-hmm. There's only more and more interest in uh, breakfast and all it, it can be. Yeah, I told you I had a chef friend named Treba Hooper who, uh, with his wife, opened a their third restaurant, this one devoted to the all-day uh, experience, dining experience, called Pie for Breakfast. <laughs> and of course, there is. Yum. <laughs> and that might be my most favorite breakfast item, actually. <laughs> I need to try that. I love pie and I love breakfast. Yes. So, no, the, I could only describe the introduction um, by your editor in chief, is he Ryan Grimm? Ryan Grimm, I love that man. It is pure Ryan. <laughs> that particular story. He is such a fantastic writer. Um, I actually had the opportunity to work uh, with him at a previous job um, when we we were at Tasting Table and Cross Paths. There, he was at Vice News before that. He is such a stunningly hilarious writer, and uh, you're, you're just you're just getting unfiltered Ryan right there talking about. Well, that. I didn't know that he was going to be able to sustain that uh, until the end, but he did. <laughs> oh, he he sure does, and. Uh, He's so much of the creative engine that that keeps this site going. Um, yeah, I mean, now just a quick summary. It's, it's he was he's fantasizing that he shrinks down to the size of a pea and runs around the breakfast buffet. <laughs> Take it on from there. You have to get the book, which is coming out soon. How did you select the people who were going to do this? Is a collection of essays, right? This a lot of it is. Uh, is content that originally has been on the site throughout the years. And we developed a lot of graphics and charts and things that are, are very particular to the book and, um, you know, and, and some of the recipes. So, you know, we've been around for a few years. So we thought, what are those essays that really tell a story of, of breakfast um, in, a, in a way that we haven't seen elsewhere that really give a global perspective on it that operate from a, a really personal point of view. We're really, really proud of our personal essays and people talking about exactly what breakfast um, means to them. Um, we have highlighted some key points in breakfast history, like there was a boycott of orange juice. Um, oh, yeah, Anita Bryant. I hadn't thought of her for years. Oh, and I mean, and the thing is, when you have John Birdsall writing for oh, you, right. you're absolutely going to highlight uh, work from him. Um, 
We've got John DeVore, who is a stunningly talented writer, who was you know there with us on launch day with an essay about how when you're broke, uh, muffins right. are something that really can sustain you. Uh, we're really proud of the variety of voices who we've gotten to write for us over the years and so i mean it was it was kind of a painful process because we would think oh this essay oh we really really want to include it <laughs> but we couldn't find room for everything but i think it's a really good cross section um, you know culturally and uh, you know in sort of every other way of the possibilities of breakfast i you i think your graphics i mean the, the section here not only is a a, a short history of eggs for breakfast, which in oh. itself was very, it was a revelation to me, actually. Well, uh, but, so, the, but the illustration is so great. Your oh, timeline is the spatula, for your egg, uh, the fried egg on the end of it. Well, we have, a, a, she's sadly, she's, she's moved on to another uh, job, but we have this illustrator, Lauren Colm, who is incredibly talented, and you could just say anything to her, and she would make what was happening in your brain, uh, put it up on your screen ten times better and, and more beautifully and more creatively than you ever imagined it could be. Um, and then there's a, you know, a great team in Birmingham who uh, styled and shot everything for it. So it was just this incredible collaborative uh, effort uh, amongst all these teams that they really, everybody working on it really got the spirit that we're trying to go for. I, I, I particularly love the periodic table of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> we had a good time with that. <laughs> I mean, who knew that eggs were? I, I mean, I always loved eggs. I always appreciated them. I was always a you know breakfast for dinner kind of person. But it wasn't until I started working here that I started really embracing all the possibilities of, of eggs and all of these other dishes. And also, it, it's made me a much much better cook uh, working here. Do you have, do you have a special chapter devoted to grits? I love grits. The first you love grits. Uh, oh my god. Uh, Oh, grits are, and I am so picky about my grits. Oh, yeah, um, no, I am, too. Peter's talking about the white stuff that he found oh, when he yeah. first came yeah. to America. Absolutely. Oh, oh the instant grits? Oh, no. you. I am married yes, to a southern man. So oh, I have to spend 30, 40 minutes just stirring and stirring and stirring, or else it's it's just kind of like pebbles and and gloop. <laughs> <laughs> I remember somebody telling, telling us once that they... They, they saw when, when, when Japanese business visitors to the United States were confronted with grits. They didn't know what to do, so they treated them like a, like a pudding. Oh, yes, yes. You know, it's one of the, the funny things that grits are also polenta, are also, you know, just different yes. things in different countries. I, I think they're so wonderfully cross-cultural or, and you could have them as, you know, as a sweet dish, you, or a, a lot of people are really actually opposed to sweet grits. Um, I like savory, cheesy grits myself, but, you know, to each their own. And I'm, I'm, the great thing about grits is it's such a tabula rasa that you can ask somebody, well, how do you like your grits? And the way that they react tells you so much about them, and it really invites them to tell a story about who they are and where they come from. <laughs> right. Now, where did cornflakes come from? Do you do you cover the mystery of where where conflicts came from? Oh, conflicts. If I am correct, those come from um, these strange health experiments exactly. that were right, right. happening in, in Battle Creek. I'm exactly. fascinated with that with that era 
of uh, of sort of wellness and what that happened yes. to mean at the time. And we've come back around in a circle to uh, what wellness can mean. But I'm I'm fascinated by that era, and I've written about it periodically. Yeah. It's it's so moralistic. It is. Now, <laughs> the, the most interesting is, of course, we just interviewed the guy who wrote Soul, and, and he makes, um, he fries his uh, shrimp coated in grits. Mm, that now, that sounds perfect. good, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds glorious. Yeah. And I will say, I, I'm trying to think my favorite grits ever, my favorite grits recipe is actually uh, Craig Claiborne's. From really? uh, w- one of his books, yeah, and it's so simple, and it's got butter and hot sauce. Um, if somebody is making grits, I love um, Bill Smith's version at Crook's Corner, um, oh, yeah. where Craig Claiborne had first gone and had it when Bill Neal was was still alive, and and had um, you know, had shrimp and grits there, and it was this grand revelation to him, and he brought it back to the New York Times, and it became this national sensation. But depending on where you are, your shrimp and grits version is going to be different. And that's, you know, there's some people have gravy, some people have tomatoes, some people are, you know, just very simple with with butter and hot sauce. But I'll I'll take them all. Yeah. <laughs> I've never met one I don't like. You're, um, I was glad to hear that you consulted um, name Kenji 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 yes. yeah Kenji uh, Lopez Alt. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, he really changed our whole approach to boiling eggs. I mean, he, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about toast, which was another revelation, but um, which I have a story about. But anyhow, um, he told us because we had debated this: started in hot, started in cold, boiled eggs. I'd I'd like soft boiled eggs. Um, and the, you have a the boiled egg timeline here. Yes. Which is down to the second, practically, right? It is. Yeah. But Kenji's method, uh, actually, we've never had to worry about boiled eggs again. Yeah, starting well, with well, boiling well, water. He, he starts his with boiling water, which which uh, was always frowned upon in my family. He didn't do things like that. He put the eggs in cold water, and you, and you started timing once the eggs boiled in the water. For he revolutionized my poaching. I, I was oh, yeah. scared to, oh, I was scared to death. Uh, we were making a video where we will, were uh, honoring Julia Child and doing her Oeuf Saint Gelais. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if I was going to pull this off on camera, I had to be able to, uh, to poach an egg on camera. And I was absolutely terrified. So I sat down one Sunday and, and looked at Julia's method and looked at Kenji's method and, and figured out how to do it and did not embarrass myself on camera. <laughs> Thank you, Kenji. Thank you, Julia. Good. Good. Now, you, you, you don't, you don't possess, happen to possess egg coddlers, though, do you? I have always, I love a coddled egg. I don't happen to own one. and I, We have two, I, we have two don't we? <laughs> do we still have them? We do. I never could get them to work. Yeah, they I, work I, fine. When we went to WD-50 that time, when oh. he made that special, what is it, 35? Now it's like 52-minute egg. egg. And, I, and, and finally, after all that rigmarole, he served it, and I said to Peter, this is a coddled egg. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. What I love so much is that these really experimental and high-end chefs when they come down to it, half the time they just want a really perfect egg. Yeah. I, I, rem- there's, I remember the first time I had Danielle Balut's food, he was serving something out of, I think it was the Shara Strength Benefit, and had just slow-cooked these eggs in the shell. I could have sworn there was cheese in there, but it wasn't. It was just that beautifully done. Well, see, if you have, if you have egg coddlers, you can, you can add things to the eggs. 
So things like blue cheese, if you want, you want a little blue cheese on top of your egg, you can do that. You can just put it in on top of the egg and it, it melts as, as the, as the egg cooks, whatever you added to it melts and melds in there and it's really wonderful. You're making me want breakfast again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I mean, to give some idea of the scope of this, I mean, of course you have acquired bacons. In fact, I never knew how to make candied bacon. I'll be able to test oh, yeah. it with this. Um, smoothies, um, the coffee, um, what else do you have here? Um, a, a Irish cream with Bailey's. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, the brunch stuff, you have all of that, the sweet oh. rolls, the bakery stuff. Um, it, it, the scope is enormous. You never realized how much you could get for half for breakfast, right? Except oh, it's it's a great big world. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's something here. What was it? I wanted to ask you, but I never heard of this. I still don't know what it is. I would never make scrapple myself, I don't think. Oh, so. I love it. Oh, I love it. I love it, but I would never tackle making my own. Do right. you do that? It is something that I really enjoy doing. I make um, head cheese really? as well. Oh, yeah, I'm, I love offal, and I really believe in it because too. these are parts that would otherwise... Um, be wasted. So oh, no, we love it, them too. But I, I do. I seem to be a lot to tackle. <laughs> well, but if you have friends who are farmers, it's okay. uh, you know it's it's in, and and I'm lucky enough to have some friends who are um, goat and pig farmers. So it's uh, oh, sort of oh. like, well, if you're not going to use that, I might as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have hash. I mean, this is a definitive book on breakfast. I think, um, and. Now here, here's a here's a danger here's a danger point though. What? Full, full English breakfast. We we won't talk a lot about that oh, just, no. just because oh. it's such an artery clogging thing. Oh, it's but, a beautiful but, thing. But, <laughs> yeah, I know. But we don't do these days it's being these days it's being over overtaken by avocado toast. <laughs> you remember when we when we had breakfast with James and Max? Oh, yes. they, they came they into they came into the hotel in London and we had breakfast together and we ordered full English breakfast and they ordered avocado toast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny corollary to that is that you know, I I have some very very dear uh, British friends who come to the U.S. and all they want is full American breakfast with eggs and pancakes and sausage, like oh. the lumberjack special. But when I go over um, to the UK, I revel in the differences between you know English breakfast, Irish breakfast, Scottish breakfast. <laughs> it makes me so happy to have that. And I'm so sad that so many cats are going away because I, I fully learned to love the full English breakfast at a you know at a Benji's or, or something like that. It was the first time I'd ever seen a you know a mushroom and a tomatoes you know, oh, served sure. at breakfast in that way. But um, few and, fr- and fried br- and fried bread, of course. Oh, of course, and bacon fat, sure. Well, and, and then the tatty scone if you're in Scotland. I love that. <laughs> well, the, the, the Irish, of course, claim that claim that their white pudding is better than the English black pudding, <laughs> and, and, there, and there's also a Cornish pudding. Is there? Yeah, we'll have to get my brother to get us some at Christmas time. It's 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 similar to uh, Irish white pudding. It has oh. a, has a lot of cereal in it. I've never tried an eel pie, and at some point I need to do oh, that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I would be less than almost... You have to have, you have, to have herrings, too. Hold, oh, hold, yeah. your, hold your nose oh, and yeah. have herrings. Oh, yeah, I can't do that. 
uh, Kat, to be perfectly honest, there are some really outrageous things in this book. Like I'm looking at the egg in a donut, which, I mean, <laughs> but, but topping that is breakfast Frito pie. <laughs> oh, and the, there's so many steps that go into that that I love it. My brilliant, brilliant colleague, um, Margaret Ebai, uh, made the chili. She made every part of that. And, you know, we have a collective love um, amongst our team for what we call our dirtbag selves. So oh, here you have a dirtbag, a Velveeta Chex Mix Nacho <laughs> Dirtbag casserole. Oh, my God, I, I could oh, cry for you that one. <laughs> and, they, and the thing is, it is so delicious. Is it? And, so it, and the, the great thing is, like, this... Uh, we haven't. We had such a great opportunity for fun here. So you know, we're a pretty tiny team at this point. There are four of us on the team, and we all just sort of nobody apologizes for their tastes. And I think <laughs> that that is really, really important because um, you know we were she that casserole came about because one day uh, she was at a lake house in um, I think she was in Alabama where she's from, and she texted me and said, "Here, this is what I have in the house. What can I make from there?" <laughs> and we we talked it through, and then we decided to actually make them together and it is unbelievably delicious it sounds disgusting and it tastes like heaven well I mean the cereal popsicles are right up there too (laughs) (laughs) those are very Instagram friendly (laughs) yes well this book anyhow uh, listeners is called Breakfast um, and it's the editors of Extra Crispy and with a forward that's worth reading by Hugh Asherson as well Um, and I, I wish you a lot of success with this book, Kat Kinsman. And, Thank um, you so yeah. much. And I really appreciate it. I, I, I wish I could promise you that I would make that, uh, that thing. Just <laughs> 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 bag casserole, but I, I really I should, am not. I, I but, should make one, freeze it, and send it to you. Yeah. It's worth having. Once in your life, you need to try it. <laughs> I'll try it. Well, if you do that, I'll try it. But, well, thank so, you. But anyhow, what... While I have you on the phone, there's something else I want. You've done so many things. You, you wrote for how many different outlets oh, did you work? Golly, I uh, started at AOL, and then I went to CNN Etocracy, yes, and that. then went to Tasting Table, and now yes. here. And I also um, write and edit for uh, Food and Wine, our sister publication, who we actually sit with. Uh-huh. And uh, you, but you do some other things too. You've published a book on anxiety. Yes. Which uh, was, must have been, and you worked on that so hard, I followed your comments oh yeah. on, on it. Um, and you also started an organization which uh, touches me deeply, which is called Chefs with Issues. Tell us yes. about that. So I realized in the course of being a food journalist that um, mental health issues are rife in the industry, and it's everything from you know, addiction and eating disorders to, you know, depression, anxiety, um, bipolar, um, just all, all sorts of uh, conditions. It's both people with those conditions who are drawn to restaurant life and also restaurant life exacerbating that. And I realized that so many people were suffering in silence. It's an incredibly macho profession where people don't feel free to talk about this. But there is also a quiet and steady loss of life that happens, um, whether it's by suicide or by, as I call it, slow suicide, right. um, leading a life without sort of healthy behaviors. So I started a website um, in January of 2016 to uh, have just a place where people could talk about it, and that's expanded into a Facebook group that um, 
The morning that we all found out that um, Anthony Bourdain had taken his own life had 828 people in there. Now it is up to uh, 2,400 people in there because people realized that they were suffering and that they didn't have to do it alone. So there's a a global group of of people who um, talk to each other and are working on solutions for better um, restaurant culture. But it's also just a really safe place to come if you're in crisis or just need other people where where you are um, to come and talk about that and find some solidarity and forward motion um, where you are. And I've I've partnered with um, the Fair Kitchens uh, Initiative. Um, Unilever uh, did a global study of uh, hazards in the health in the um, hospitality industry and came up with some really shocking statistics. And um, they've been able to help me take uh, to to travel around and get chefs together in a room in different cities and um, and talk about what's what's going on with them and how to move forward in their community. So I've been able to do that all around the U.S., and um, I had the opportunity to do it uh, recently in um, Denmark and in Canada. So oh, wow. it's just one conversation okay. at a time. Now, how about a contact point for that? Uh, chefswithissues.com. Yeah, oh. it, it, it really, I can't stress enough how oh, um, important it is that people talk about it in, in, in general, outside the industry and, and within the industry, and the only way we're all going to get through this is together. Well, you're a great gal. Well, <laughs> thanks, <Matt> <laughs> you. Thank you so much for having me and for reading the book. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's a fun book. Everybody should get that. Well, Don't forget you. Breakfast by the editors <laughs> of Extra Crispy. And great talking to you, Kat. Great talking to you. Thank you so much, both of you. And I hope I get to see you again before it is several years. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so, too. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and next we're going to look to two new companies that we've encountered that we're crazy about. Uh, the first one um, raises the bar totally on um, spices. 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 Yeah. And uh, it's Burlap and Barrel is the name of the company. And, well, the founders and principals are going to explain why this is a different Company altogether. Yeah, they have a different business model. They have a different range of products as yeah. well. Yeah. Re- really, a couple of really exciting young and, men. And if you taste the difference between this and what you're used to buying off a supermarket shelf, you will be amazed. Uh, and, and, then, then, and then my latest craze. Oh, yes, this is. Go ahead. Oh, you, well, you can, you're craving it. You're eating it up like crazy. <laughs> yes, we're talking uh, to Karen Mossholder from Bumbleberry Farms, and they make the most marvelous honey as well as honey cream spreads. And let's listen then to Karen, and we're going to listen first of all to the guys from Burlap and Barrel. Um, 
I don't remember exactly how I heard of this company, Burlap and Barrel, uh, but I'm sure glad I did. We're going to be talking to the founders, um, Ethan Frisch and Ori Zohar, is it Ori? That's right. Yes. Uh, so I don't remember how I located you, but tell me, what is this company? So this is this is Ethan. Uh, we are the first and only comprehensive single origin spice company operating in the U.S., which means we source directly from small spice farmers in nine countries. Uh, we put a lot of work into curating the very specific spices that we import and and the different varieties and and uh, choosing what country to source from and then within that even which farm to source from based on the terroir or the techniques of the farmer. And then we supply those spices to restaurants, to home cooks across the country, to companies manufacturing all kinds of foods from craft beer to chocolate to snacks to chai syrups, you name it. Well, now, what qualified you to do this? I mean, this is, this is, this is not something that you sort of wake up one morning and say, I know all about this. No, definitely not. And uh, I don't know what qualifies us to do this, except that we decided that this should be a thing that we did. Um, I, uh, we, this is our second business together. We had an ice cream company in 2010. Um, we sold um, ice cream flavors inspired by political movements and revolutions. Oh, where was that? On, on the streets of New York City. Yeah, what was the name of the company? Um, it was called Gorilla Ice Cream. And okay. It had all kinds of crazy flavors. Right, uh, I know. Duck it. ice cream and... Yes. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I heard of it. And I also know that there's a, um, was it a sauce company that's doing the same thing? Or the the political thing? I I haven't come across them. And if you buy a particular bottle, you vote, you you cast a vote, not officially, of course, but uh, in this contest they run, um, or campaign they run for, for, um, usually for president. So if you wanted to buy a... There was an an enterprise here called... Conflict Kitchen. Oh yeah, that was interesting. That was that was right here in Pittsburgh, and they they. they yeah, sure. I, I read a lot about them. You I, did, oh, okay. yeah. yeah, they, they were great. They're, they're out of Carnegie Mellon University. They're also, they're also out of business, I think, now too. I think they were too. So anyhow, so yeah, okay, so, so you did the ice cream. <laughs> so in any case, that was our first business together, and then uh, we we went our separate ways, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that process, and and came back together about two years ago to start this. Uh, I had been a, a chef in New York um, and then went to work in international development. I lived in Afghanistan for a couple of years, and that was where the company, the idea for the company started was when I was living oh, in yeah, Afghanistan working for a nonprofit. Um, and I started bringing spices home with me, smuggling them in, in a duffel bag, this particular variety of, of wild cumin that grows in the mountains of which, by the way, we tasted, and it's excellent. We use a lot of cumin, and this is really particular. Yeah, it's it's pretty different from anything that most people in the U.S. have tasted before. It really only grows at high altitudes in Central Asia. Um, it's not it's not widely known outside of that region, and and that was really for me the spice that that made me realize that there was this huge diversity within a category exactly. that had always been fairly homogenous. You're going to tell me next that the the uh, humans picked by monkeys. I that's what they always told me. Right. <laughs> Like like the coffee that's uh, <laughs> the tea, that's yeah. digested by monkeys, <laughs> right, right? So okay, and so um, you you 
reflect certain activist values, and you do a lot of good by supporting these small farmers, which I really admire. Um, so, I mean, some chocolate makers do the same thing, which I just I love. Um, and no, we haven't heard from Ori. Ori, what was your background before making ice cream? Yeah, uh, before making ice cream, my background was kind of in marketing, business operations, but kind of mine and Ethan's relationship mostly blossoms, you know, around the dining table. Ethan was always cooking these amazing things, and I was always trying to get a seat at the table whenever he was cooking. <laughs> and so that's how we started. And when we started the ice cream business, Ethan had been a pastry chef at a high-end restaurant in New York, and he said, well, I, want, I was making a lot of ice cream. I really liked it. I think there's something that we could do here about taking flavors from all over the world and bring them together. And everybody said, talk to Ori. He's our business friend. Oh. <laughs> and and Ethan and I kicked around some ideas, and we, we kind of came up with this idea around the ice cream business. And then, and then we did it for four months and, and got a lot of press attention and figured out kind of what worked, what didn't work, how do you tell kind of the story about flavors from, you know, international political movements and revolutions and through ice cream. And so we got to learn a lot of the lessons from that. And I also learned um, um, about oral hygiene because I had three cavities by the end of the ice cream <laughs> business. <laughs> um, but after that, I, I had to. I, I got a taste for kind of entrepreneurship, and and I said I have to find out the next thing. And through a friend of a friend of a friend, I ended up meeting some investors out of Switzerland and started a mortgage business in San Francisco of all things. Oh dear! Because I think that there are two types of entrepreneurs. There's kind of the subject matter expert who who brings the like the depth of expertise, and then there's the person who's kind of the business generalist and helps to kind of turn those expertise into into business and into something that can grow. And so that was kind of the balance between myself and Ethan, but I ended up spending four years building a venture-backed mortgage company to try to help guide people through this really important and super confusing decision around home financing. And I cut my teeth and learned a lot more about how to build a business, how to raise money, how to hire and build a team and prioritization, all these things that I think that are really, really important and, and very transferable across any startup. Yeah, I agree, so, yeah. After doing that, kind of checked back in with Ethan. He had been in Afghanistan and in Jordan as an aid worker and came back and bought these amazing spices that were getting really great reviews from his chef friends who said, hey, if you can bring this in, we would love to buy this. And, and wow. with that, the business started. Yeah. Now, where, Ethan, where were you chefing? Uh, I was a pastry chef at a restaurant called Allen and Delancey okay. on the Lower East Side. Uh, I cooked at a famous restaurant called Tabla. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. We we interviewed Floyd him. Cardo. What's he doing now? Floyd. Yeah. Floyd Cardoz. He has a restaurant. He has a restaurant in the in Soho called Bombay Bread Bar, which is. Oh, great. is that he still has um, that? Okay. Yeah, and he he also has two restaurants in India. So I think he. he oh, that's right. Him. I forgot about that. Yeah. No, we interviewed him when he was a tabla, and then uh, I guess he was doing something with. Um, uh, what's the name? Sh- of it? Share our strength. Share our strength. We we talked to him about that. He was in town. Um, yeah, yeah, I love I loved Tabla actually, but I guess it wasn't very yeah, it popular. Was a, it was a, it was a great place to work. Uh, it was always busy when I was there, and and I learned a ton. And he was an incredible chef to work on. Isn't really he wonderful? Yeah, he's best, so sincere. Uh, balance between teacher and boss. Yeah, really. He's a real, real person. So yeah. Well, now let's, let, let's slide. Let's slide back to some of these. Right. Um, I ex- think that these exotic. Yeah, things. I mean it's 
uh, you, I we've seen so many books on uh, spices lately, and um, I'm sort of very keen on spices. Uh, and I, uh, you know, that we interviewed the uh, Spice Spice Baby Woman. You wrote to me the yeah. lunch with her, and um, and and I have I keep passing to my daughter-in-law all these books on on uh, spice and health and healing because I really believe in it. And so um, I, I know that there are all these almost undiscovered spices out there and that there are a bunch of spices that should be common knowledge to everybody interested in nourishing anybody, including themselves. So uh, how many spices do you have? Our, our lineup is always shifting a little bit based on what's in season and, and what's New and what uh, new new relationships that we're setting up with partner farmers. We have about fifty spices in total, um, and that's anything from better versions of pretty common spices. Yes, great cinnamon from an organic co-op in Zanzibar. Great black pepper, uh, beautiful turmeric from a single farm in in southern India. Yeah, I so love those turmeric. I'm just, I mean, yeah. I just, that's one of the great unsung <laughs> leaders of, of um, healthy choices and spices. In fact, we'll yeah, be having yeah. chicken thighs tonight and guess, and guess what will be sprinkled on them. Oh, but you don't have the fresh okay. root. We usually get the fresh root. We don't, we, I, it's all right, yeah. it's all right to use the powder. Okay. I mean, I do it lots of times without you even knowing it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but I, I slice it into yeah. my green tea. How about that one? Sprinkle with pepper. I mean, I do if that you part. infuse the powder into uh, into coconut oil or into butter at the beginning of the cooking process, you'll get a really beautiful yellow color and a turmeric flavor that, especially if you use our turmeric, that is pretty similar to what you would get from the fresh fruit. Yeah, well, I, potency. I intend to. Uh, you sell to, to people like me, not necessarily just to chefs, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's about half of our businesses is. is Home cooks around the country. Good. So I go on your website, which is burlap and barrel with and spelled out and one L because <laughs> I misspelled it with two L's for some reason. I hit the key <laughs> too strong. <laughs> um, and and so uh, what about now? You sent us now before I get to that. I think half the romance of the spice is finding it locating it, interacting with the growers and the culture that the spice comes from. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we don't, uh, home cooks especially, but even professional chefs don't think a lot about spices as agricultural products. We, we're used to, you know, we know that apples come from a tree, but we don't know that cinnamon is, is tree bark, and we don't know that black pepper is a berry that grows on a on a vine in bunches like grapes. We just don't. There's no connection between most cooks in the U.S. and spices as a an ingredient that's worthy of good sourcing. Um, and so that was that. That's a lot of what we work on is how to how to increase that awareness and that enthusiasm for spices beyond this is how it tastes and these are the health benefits, which are obviously important. But what's the step behind that? What's the what was the supply chain? Who was the person who grew it? What did it look like on the plant? Um, and what was the climate and the terroir? How did it how did it grow to create a flavor that that we can experience in food that we cook? So um, we spend a lot of time traveling. We spend a lot of time either meeting new farmers or or spending time with farmers that we already work with. Um, and and that's a really that's an incredible part of this business is is being able to 
spend time with a farmer, understand their process, bring that information back to our customers in the U.S., but then likewise bring feedback from our customers here back to our partner farmers to say, this is a, a picture of a, a dish that this restaurant is cooking with your nutmeg. Oh, really? Or here are pictures that some of our home-cooked customers have sent us. Uh, you know, they made fried eggs this morning, and, and they put your chili flakes on it. Or <laughs> um, here's, a, here's a cake that somebody baked with, with your poppy seeds. Uh, being wonderful. able to have that communication go both ways is not something that anyone has ever done in the spice industry. I've never heard of it before. I love that. I love the whole concept of now, that. Now, let's take, a, let's take a, a, for instance, an example, the, the cumin. I use cumin seed a lot, especially when I'm, when I'm cooking pork. But well, this is, remember, wild the, mountain the, Your cumin. wild mountain cumin looks different. It's not, it's not a seed, so is it some different part of the plant, or just what, what's, what's the difference? So it, it looks different because it is different. Um, it's, uh, it is a seed, but it's a different plant. Okay. So uh, botanically, actually completely different from the standard cuminum cuminum, which is the botanical name for standard cumin. Right. Ours is bunium persicum, or bunium bolicastanum. Um, it's... It has a similar sort of a, a flavor that's very reminiscent of standard cumin, but it's got a lot of complexity, a lot of other flavors on top of that. I, I get pine and mint and apricot. Um, it's very complex. It's also much fresher than probably yeah, any other that, cumin you've ever eaten in your life. Yeah, this is what the freshness of these, because, I mean, the, the, if they're not fresh, it really affects the, the whole result of the now, spice. Hold on, was I listening correctly? The, the, so that cumin, it's a, it's a ground-up ver- version of the seed of this plant? No, it's, those yeah. are the whole seeds. They're just smaller seeds than, oh, okay. than the All standard right. cumin seed that you've seen before. Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned I've squeezed in there about the freshness, how that has, has to play into this. Um, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, it's international regs and things like that are difficult. Yeah, it's difficult, but you you just do it because it's important. Um, <laughs> we the, the the cumin that you tasted is the most recent harvest of that wild cumin. It's picked by shepherds out in the mountains with their sheep in a province called Badakhshan in northeastern Afghanistan. Um, I lived there. I lived in Afghanistan for several years, and I have a friend, a former colleague, uh, who's from that province, and he and his wife helped collect it from these shepherds who have foraged it in the mountains. Uh, truck it down through the mountains to Kabul, and we ship it from Kabul to New York. Um, the cumin that you have was picked in August and September of, of 2018, so it's only a couple wow. months old. Wow. Um, and that's really, that's, that's what we're doing. One of the things that we're doing that's so different from the way that the spice trade has always operated is to say there's no reason that, that uh, it should take a long time. Um, we're working with a very high-quality product that deserves an enormous amount of respect, and it shouldn't sit in a warehouse for months or years, which is usually what happens with spices. We are, we're going for quality over quantity, where the commodity market is really only focused on quantity. And so if this were the commodity market, there would be a, a one farmer, a couple of farmers growing a little bit of cumin. That would get stuck in a warehouse. Uh, more cumin would get purchased from other farmers. That would get piled in the same warehouse. It might take them a year to assemble the quantity that they need to ship it. Um, and then it spends three months on the water, and then it spends three months stuck in customs, and then yes. it takes a while to get packed, and then it gets 
stuck in another warehouse in the U.S., and it could take three or as long as I've heard of stories as long as 10 years from the harvest date to the, to the home cook or to the, to the consumer. But in, um, in, in your case, it actually comes by, by sea? Uh, our, most of our shipments come in by air. Oh, they do, okay. I would say yeah. by air, yeah. Yeah, we want to have them as, as quickly as possible after they're harvested. That's, you know, spices don't get better with age. The, no. uh, at some point, all of the, the interesting flavors will evaporate out, and then it doesn't really matter how long it sits. But yeah, if, you can, if you can taste the spice within a year of it being harvested, you're, you're going to have a totally <laughs> different experience. Yeah, and Anne, this is, Ori, you mentioned earlier the coffee industry, and I think that that's something that, like, people understood about coffee, where coffee just used to be coffee, like, that was you. There's only one kind that you got, right? And now <laughs> people are thinking, where is it from? How was it dried? How was it roasted? When was it roasted? And they're starting to ask those questions, and that's happened to coffee and tea and chocolate, and yet spices are still kind of these, like, powders, you know, that people keep in their in their pantry, and, you know, the reality is that just because of the way that they were sourced, for the majority of them, it really, you know, they lost the majority of their flavor on the way to your pantry, on the way to your supermarket, um, and then they stay there for a while. But really, it's about getting a much more kind of fragrant and, and, and powerful and potent product straight to your kitchen in as direct of a line as possible, and, and you, can, you can taste the results. You can smell the results uh, uh, almost immediately. Well, you know, you have a very, very uh, large hurdle to get over to start with, is that you got to make sure that people understand that they need education around these spices, because uh, this is why so many people uh, use, what is that stuff that they use for uh, cinnamon um, that it tastes so horrible? What, what is that? I mean, they're, they're, they pollute, they uh, they. Um, stretch, whatever you call that, with spices, with non-premium um, ingredients. And some of it could be grass. I mean, not grass, grass. But I mean, they're like, saying they're cutting spices. Yes, with other, that. Yes. With, yeah. And and they get away with it. Saffron is a good example of it. You know, there's that other stuff that people buy that gets you the color, but it's not saffron. Yeah, it's, it's so, unfortunately pretty common in spices. Sometimes it's it's just. Uh, deceitful, right? Exactly what you said. Yeah, I think a lot of it's deceitful. Yeah, especially the stuff that comes out of China. In some cases, it's actually dangerous. There are stories about um, peanut shells being ground up and mixed into into shipments of coriander or cumin, and that resulting in in severe allergic reactions. Um, So, so but what do you do? of education. I mean, how do you get your word out and get to... You, you need almost a one-on-one experience to get through all the crap about what people think about spices. Well, we're, we're very lucky to be able to talk to people through mediums like this, like, like this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but we... Yes, storytelling uh, and education is a huge part of our business. Um, right. I do a lot of workshops and events in New York City. Uh, we're on the menus at a lot of restaurants and, and chefs at the restaurants and the front of house staff at the restaurants will talk to customers if they're interested about where spices come from. And, and like Ori mentioned, I think a lot of the heavy lifting has been done by the coffee industry. So people are, are finally starting to question a little bit more where their ingredients come from, not just, uh, coffee and tea or, or farmer's market vegetables or, um, local fruits and vegetables, but, but also what's, what are the supply chains behind the, the ingredients that you haven't thought about before, like cinnamon or black pepper? 
and, yeah. and we're seeing, and we're seeing also people starting to seek out kind of more flavor in their in their food and trying to say kind of I had I had food from this restaurant or from this part of the world. How do I recreate that at home? Where is that base? There's a curiosity around it, mm-hmm. and it also happens that especially now and kind of coming into a new year. Um, people are really thinking about how do I add flavor to my food that doesn't involve salt or fat. Yeah. And spices <laughs> are, are these flavor bombs that, that don't, that don't have any other kind of, uh, uh negative effects or, you know, if you want to avoid salt and fat, these are a great way to, to find that flavor. Now, I'm one of these spices, um, I'm dying to use because I tried to make my own and, um, the black lime, uh, we, we really were, told about this and experienced it a long, long time ago in England by a chef. Um, in, in where, I don't remember where it was in England, but at any rate, I, I tried... Cheltenham is the answer. Cheltenham. I tried um, blackening and drying out my limes, and it takes a really long time. I mean, I, I had them on the sunny windowsill doing this, and um, just as I was getting to the point where I could see them turning black, the housekeeper threw them out, <laughs> which was very awful. So, but you have that. You have unusual spices, too. Uh, I wanted you to tell me a little more about black lime. And I also, I have never encountered cinnamon tree leaves. And what do I do with it? Yeah, great question, both of them. The black lime... Uh, is is often used in Middle Eastern cooking. It's used in a lot of classic Iraqi or Iranian dishes, um, and adds this this obviously a, a tartness, but also this great sort of savory depth of flavor I that you wouldn't it. get from a fresh lime or or lime juice. I've um, been le- I've been eating it out of the jar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, wet my finger. It's not very sanitary or hygienic, I guess, but I do that. You didn't hear that. Your jar, uh, enjoy yourself. That's what it's for. Um, it, uh, that actually was a, an interesting project. That was a custom sourcing commission that we got from Sweetgreen, the national oh, right. salad yeah. chain. Um, they were doing a, a limited, a limited run with a, a very famous chef named Dan Barber. Um, oh, yeah. I know, I know Dan. Yeah. yeah. So he had asked for black wine for the would. dish that he had created for them. And they weren't able to source it domestically at all, let alone to their their pretty pretty high standards in terms of traceability. And so they came to us and asked if we would source it for them, which we did. Um, we got it from uh, our partner farmer in Guatemala, who mostly grows cardamom. Uh, but he had also he and I had been talking about black lime for quite a while. He had some lime trees and thought there might be some opportunity. Um, and we just needed the push from Sweetgreen to make it happen. But it's also it's done exceptionally well. Um, among home cooks, among professional chefs, people are really, really excited about it. I think there's something about that tart flavor. It's very familiar, but it's also, it's also really exciting and different. Um, so what about these the cinnamon tree leaves? leaves? Yeah, what about those? Yeah, the, the cinnamon tree leaves are, are byproduct of the cinnamon harvest. So cinnamon, as most people don't know, is tree bark. Yeah. And the particular variety of cinnamon that our partner cooperative in Zanzibar grows, um, Instead of cutting down the whole tree, which is the standard practice in commodity cinnamon, they're able to cut off individual branches of the tree and, and harvest the bark so that the tree stays alive and continues to produce. Right. And they, they get a, a very, they get a, a really great bark and they can also control the age of the bark. Younger bark is going to be lighter and sweeter. Older bark is going to be stronger and spicier. Um, 
And when you cut a branch off the tree, there are obviously a lot of leaves attached to that branch. And they've always just been thrown away. They've been cut off the, off the branch and left on the forest floor when actually they, they have a great uh, flavor and, and have a lot of interesting uses as a culinary ingredient. So we, you think we they taste like cinnamon? A, I mean, they taste like cinnamon, you say. They, we market them as a, a bay leaf alternative. That's what they're, I was saying. Definitely, yeah, exactly. Definitely Probably a cinnamon smooth. aroma, but without the sweetness that you would get yeah, from Yeah, I didn't from taste that much powder. cinnamon in them. I was eating those too. <laughs> so I could see if you put it in something like the braised, braising. Um, yep, great in stews or soups, anything braised. They're great with beans. You can throw one in a, a pot of rice or any other kind of grain. And you'll get a, a really beautiful cinnamon perfume uh, in the rice. Oh, another way to use that. We have a ton of dried seaweed that somebody sent us. I'm trying to find ways to use that up. Yeah. <laughs> that would be good in dried seaweed, right? Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we also have a, a dried seaweed. We have a, a wild kelp from Iceland that we oh, yeah. I actually brought home on vacation a couple of years ago. I, we, I went to this producer... Uh, and bought fifty five a fifty five pound sack on the spot. Carried it home in my suitcase. That's a lot of um, seaweed. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a lot, but we've we've placed three big orders since then, and and moved. I don't know, probably several hundred pounds at least, if not if not close to a ton. Wow. Well, I mean, this we could talk to you forever about this. Do you ever work with Leor? Yeah, it's funny. LeBlanc. We just had lunch with him. He's a friend of mine. We just had lunch with him um, uh, last week, and we're we're working on a project together. So I won't say too much now, but stay tuned. I, I think he's terrific. I mean, I love his stuff. Yeah. Well, well let it, let us know when the secret's out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we will. Well, and just one other point about I think the cinnamon tree leaves that you're you're coming into the area we we have to talk about, which is also about impact. And yeah. now our direct model of sourcing is a different way of working with farmers. The cinnamon trees, as even the tree leaves, as Ethan mentioned, are actually a byproduct of the cinnamon tree harvest. So we like to work with the farmers to do as much on-site value added as possible because then our partner farmers end up getting much more of the final kind of price, the final sale of, of the item. They get to keep more of it in-house. And so with the cinnamon tree leaves, it was something that was being thrown away not only are they harvesting it and drying it now, and also they're packaging it for us on site. And so we're able to pay them more and more and more of the, of the final price. We're looking at other ways to support farmers, whether it's renewing their organic certification, whether it's helping them finance spice grinders or just doing more drying, grinding, sorting, other things like that that they can do that then allow us to kind of pay more for the final product. And we view that as a we get to win because – we, the spices skip a stop along the way. We don't need to send it to a third party. They get to win because they, they get to keep more of it, and our customers get a, an even higher quality product that has a much shorter journey along the way. Listeners, these, these guys are clearly really very fascinating young people with a wonderful story to tell. You, you may be sure they'll be back on the program. So yeah, sure, I'm so happy sure I to, found you guys. Be sure to keep checking when this secret is revealed. Right. We'll have it on the air for you. Well, keep in touch, Ethan and Ori, and uh, listeners. Look for on the on the your, on the uh, web. Look for the URL burlop with an A and spelled out and barrel with two one L 
com, and you're going to learn more than you ever realized you didn't know. And for freshness, for uh, well, for just about anything you want to tackle, go to these people because they're experts, and you're going to be doing good at the same time by way of sustainability, supporting diversity, uh, supporting these farmers, and, and all over the world. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Those who listen regularly to this program know that I'm passionate about bees. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Karen Mossholder actually didn't know that when I contacted her about her uh, honey, but now she knows. Karen, <laughs> you, you sent out a, a press release. Uh, I was so horrified to understand all the Awful impurities, metals, and and um, insecticides, and all kinds of things that were being sold regularly in supermarkets as honey, and they weren't even 100% honey. But yeah, so, so yeah, I perked up. Funny. I perked up immediately about Bumbleberry Farms, which is your business, and the cool. fact that you are now True Source. What does that mean? You're True Source certified. Yes, well, you know, as a beekeeper, um, I harvest uh, my honey here in the Somerset County area, and typically I sell that honey locally to people who are interested in the positive effects of honey from their local area uh, to help things like um, allergies, asthma, that type of thing. Um, but living in Pennsylvania, as you know, we... We really have a bloom season that is, you know, three, four months long. It's very short. So in order to uh, be a commercial beekeeper, I, I really would need to look at moving south where flowers bloom a little bit oh, more yeah. frequently. Um, so I source some of my honey, and um, I sell it all over the country, and I was recently certified as a true source honey provider. And what that means is that all of the honey that I sell um, is ethically sourced in a really transparent and traceable manner so that um, there is a paper trail right to the beekeeper and um, there is a, a third party that audits that honey to ensure that it is coming from the source that we say it is. And uh, several years ago, and, and the whole reason that this is important is that several years ago, um, what we saw in the honey industry is that many uh, countries were uh, bringing honey or, or uh, we were importing honey from other countries, and it, it turned out not to be quite what they, you know, said that it was. Yes, right. And there were many countries that were, 
cutting the honey with other sources, adding uh, their own sugars or corn syrup or sweeteners. Um, oftentimes, you know, honey coming from an area of very high pollution um, may also reflect that in the honey. And so the U.S. beekeepers and honey industry decided to um, really set up this program so that we could ensure that we were producing and, and bottling good quality honey um, so that we knew, you know, it was going to our tables and that it was something that was healthful and pure. Yeah, um, and it and tastes so like how they should taste. I mean, that's the exactly. remarkable thing. It really tastes like honey. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> right. It's funny. I guess somebody... I guess somebody in, the somebody in the Department of Agriculture knew about the owl and the pussycat, huh? I guess so. <laughs> you, know, you know that, right? They they took some honey and plenty of money and wrapped up in a five-pound note. <laughs> oh, I forgot that story. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's a little poem. <laughs> so um, you have many angles to your business that are remarkable that we should talk of course, let's say you've done many, many things. You have a long uh, history of um, entrepreneurship, for example. Uh, you are a certified woman-owned business, too, right? Yes, I am. I'm a woman-owned business. And, and you I employ mothers. My... Mothers, mind you. But... Yes. Well, you know, here's my philosophy. When I started my business, um, I wanted to make sure that I was doing good in the world. And so I, I always applaud companies that can do big, grand gestures of good. Um, but as a small business, those types of things were a little bit difficult for me. And so I kind of decided to sort of take my lead from the bees um, who work very hard. Uh, you know, a single honeybee gathers enough nectar to make only one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. So you can imagine how... Lots of small gestures on the part of a honeybee add up to, you know, a big, a big thing. And so, um, I decided every year that I would try to, um, work on doing one thing, uh, that, that would do good. And so you mentioned hiring women, um, you know, as, as a mother myself, of course my children are grown now, but I remember how challenging it was to work and, um, and raise a family, and it was just, it was exhausting. It was, uh, you felt like you were pulled in many different directions. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I do is hire moms with young children, and I let them set their own hours. See, that's and great. And so um, I have, you know, I have somebody who prefers to work, you know, late afternoon into the evening. That works out fine. Um, I have a couple other women who you know, come anywhere between 8 and 8.30, and they'll leave at 2 o'clock so they can meet the bus uh, when their children come home from school. So I, I try to do that when I can. I work with um, other women who maybe uh, just want, you know, a, a day or two as needed. Um, and so that's kind of, it's been working out pretty well, and it helps as a small business. It helps me kind of manage the ebb and flow of, um, you know, orders and sales, and uh, so it's worked out well for everyone. Now, um, what was that book that we all read when we fell in love with bees, remember? 
What was it called? The Secret Life of Bees? Something the like Secret that. Life of Bees is a is a piece of fiction, which is wonderful. I love yeah, that book, too. I love too. too. Yeah. I, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and when talking to interviewing the beekeeper that I was telling you about in London, um, she knows all kinds of things about, like, what all the little bee dances mean. And what a wonderful... Oh, it's yeah. fascinating. Hon- honeybees communicate through dance. Right. And um, so if, uh, if there is a nectar source uh, nearby, the scout bees, every, every bee in the colony has, uh, they, they all have different roles. And uh, the scout bees, their job is to uh, fly about, find some really beautiful honey sources, for example, and they come back to the hive and communicate the location <laughs> of that, uh, that flower source dance. Um, sort of like, also, this means follow me, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and a, a place that I think it, it really is fascinating, um, when a colony uh, maybe has to vacate their hive for whatever reason, maybe um, they're, they're in a, um, a hollow tree and the colony has grown too large for the space in that tree, so they'll be, they will look for another location. And um, it's just fascinating. They'll send out several bees, and, you know, maybe one bee finds, you know, a hole in someone's attic and thinks that's a great spot. <laughs> maybe another bee finds another tree. Uh, maybe another bee, you know, finds uh, the eaves of our garages, um, all places where honeybees can be found. And they will come back, communicate that location, and do the dance. Now, every other bee in that colony will then seek those locations and basically vote for the <laughs> one that, <laughs> that that bee believes is best. And when all of the honeybees are doing the same dance, that's when the colony will swarm. They'll leave the hive and uh, they'll swarm and um, eventually make their way to that other location. You know, once this happened to us, they located in a tree in my backyard, which is um, it was a very small tree. <laughs> it seemed kind right. of funny to pick it, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, but they uh, they all went to uh, they all went to sleep except they kept a couple of guards flying around, and and my neighbor is hysterical because his wife was uh, lethally allergic to <laughs> to mm-hmm. bees. Well, so I called. I called this uh, uh, hive person, you know, had hives, and mm-hmm. it was right. it was actually before the uh, colony collapse tragedy, and um and, and they were just loaded, and so he said to me, "Don't worry, as soon as the first ray of light comes up, they will take off." And sure enough, the first ray of light light shone, and they rose up as a group and took off. Okay. It- and then, and then they came Were you able back. to witness that? Did oh, yeah, that? I watched it. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was fascinated by the whole thing. The trouble was they came back. They came back. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason that some of them may have come back, there may have been some out and about looking for a new home, but the queen's pheromone, the queen's scent, would have been on that the branches, uh-huh. and they are drawn to that. So... Um, as long as that, I mean, I think eventually that probably would have dissipi- dissipated. They probably would have gone away. Um, but that's, that's why they're, 
they're you know still still there. They they smell her scent. Well, we love them. And no, we're, no, we're, we're not, we're not going to tell you the end of the story. No, this is my neighbor. We'll just pretend it was a happy ending. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. So, Robert, you had a question. Well, I, I I'm trying to imagine how you came up with this the latest nectar of the gods in little jars. Oh, the cream. Oh, the cream. The honey spreads, right. Because just You know, as I, as I told you, um, you know, really being a beekeeper in this area uh, where things don't bloom quite as often, um, I, I found that I really wanted to uh, create a value-added product. Uh, is what the, what it's called, where honey is one of the ingredients, um, but uh, I add you know other other ingredients to make some sort of a product, and that allows the honey to go a little bit farther. So I started concocting things in my kitchen, and um, I remembered a family cookie recipe that my my children just loved, and uh, there was a sort of a ganache type layer. And I can still see them sitting on the uh, the stools at the counter. Just you know, they couldn't even wait for the cookie. They were <laughs> eating the ganache layer. And I thought, you know, I wonder if I could kind of take that as a as inspiration and tweak it a bit. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I used honey, butter, whole milk, vanilla, sea salt, spices, everything that you would find in your pantry. And I created what I call a honey cream spread. And uh, currently, I have four flavors. Uh, Lovers, uh, yeah. Who names them? Yeah. The names are wonderful. Tell, tell us <laughs> the names. Well, I have Lovers Leap Sea Salt Caramel, and um, that was named actually after one of my earliest uh, tasters. I was at a coffee and tea festival in New York City, and this woman tasted it, and she said. I just want to dive into a jar and live there. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I just love that. That was such a great testimonial. So I called it Lover's Leap. Um, squirrel Crazy Maple, Sticky Bun Cinnamon, and a Molten Lava Chocolate. <laughs> and these are, are basically flavors from my childhood uh, here in Pennsylvania. Well, and, and, they're and, just wonderful. And listeners, you want to know how you eat them? Yeah, you eat, you eat them right out of the jar with the food. <laughs> <laughs> but no, totally. I mean, they're very versatile, and, and I can't wait. You know, our, our grandchildren are fixated on Nutella, and, um, and Nutella has a lot of uh, things in it that are not really very wholesome. <laughs> this beats the hell out of Nutella, I can tell you. Yeah, this, I, this will take over. So Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't use any preservatives. I don't use any... Artificial flavors, uh, everything in that jar is, is natural and whole. Um, and, uh, of course, refrigerate after opening. Um, yeah. But you can stir these in coffee, spread them on toast or pancakes, drizzle them over popcorn. Um, I love them in oatmeal or Greek yogurt. A lot but, of uh, we like the Greek yogurt with them a lot, yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah, there, there's one thing uh, that's left to be done here um, so that people can lay hands on them. How do they do that? Uh, well, um, in the, if, if you're, you know, your listeners are primarily in the Pittsburgh area, um, a number of the Whole Foods stores in the area carry them. Uh, Wiggle Whiskey. Wiggle Whiskey. Um, oh, she's, you know, yeah. her, she's wonderful. Meredith. Oh, Meredith. Is, that, that family is just, they're 
such darling people, and I love, uh, you know, their whole story is so great. Yeah. And um, they're really wonderful to work with, too. So, uh, can, um, can they buy online on your website? Yes, you can buy online on the website. You can also enter your zip code and uh, find a, a shop near you. Okay, and if you a store finder. If you can't find it, yeah, if you can't find it in your area, I would encourage listeners to, you know, ask their local um, shop, uh, gift shops, uh, gourmet food stores, cheese stores. Certainly. Yeah, great on cheese, too. be a great addition to a cheese place. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's great on a, a cheese board. So, uh, you it's, know, if they have a local shop? www.bumblebearyfarmsplural.com. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's right. Well, Karen, you, you really inspired us with this, honey. And we could use it on, well, if he's going to go, he's already eating it with a spoon out of the jar. <laughs> 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 that, that, that's a that's a testimonial. There you go. Thank well, you so much. It was wonderful meeting you too, Karen. Maybe we'll, our paths will cross again. Keep us posted on what you do down the line. I will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that, well, Miss Anne, that. That sure was a marathon. Well, something old, something new. <laughs> something something spicy, something spicy, something sweet. Yeah, and all, the, all these people are really important participants in the industry, which is the fun of our job, I guess. And, and we're, we're, let's again close by wishing Karen, Kat Kinsman. Yeah, su- much, much, much success. At, success. Uh, food, you don't food, need food and Wine magazine. And much success to the guys from Burlap and Barrel who have invented not just a new market but a new business model as well. And, 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 not, and not to forget... And Karen, Karen, not yeah. To forget Karen, 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 your product is just absolutely incredible. And uh, we'll join you at the same time, same place with more incredible stories about food, wine and travel. And in the meantime... Bye-bye. <laughs>